genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to the second episode of Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. Uh, my guest today is Nori Williams. Nori is a certified genetic counselor working in a medical examiner's office in a large urban area. She graduated from Sarah Lawrence College in 2016. She is a member of the National Society of Genetic Counselors, NSGC's Cardiovascular Special Interest Group and Postmortem Working Group. She is also a member of the Education Committee for New York State Genetics Task Force. And on top of all those memberships, she is also a thesis and clinical supervisor for genetic counseling trainees from Sarah Lawrence College. Hi, Nori. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. So how did you end up working in a medical examiner's office? That's not a typical role for a genetic counselor. Yeah, it's not so run of the mill. So first I have to give a little disclaimer. Not here formally representing my employer. My opinions are my own. Okay, Okay. noted. (laughs) Great. So, okay, we'll bring it back to 2016. This is my second year of genetic counseling training, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh Um, I knew that I wanted to stay in New York. Uh, I didn't know what specialty I wanted to pursue, but my training was pretty comprehensive Uh like I had experience in rotations doing prenatal cancer peds but I also had um, a neuro rotation a neurosurgery rotation I had um, some cardio experience I had lots of specialty clinics like Williams and OI so there was a lot to kind of pick and choose from Uh Um, and so I was confident that I could just jump into anything Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just like what's available to me in New York City and just for people who are a little less familiar with genetic counseling Uh, the (laughs) the classic areas that most people find jobs cancer prenatal pediatrics right are the three big ones those are the big three yeah yeah and so I was honestly looking at just all the job boards to see what was available and um, on genetics task force job board Uh um, was this job posting for um, a genetic counselor at a medical examiner's office. And so I just applied. I came in for an interview. I met with um, the lab director, Uh the um, administrator, and um, one of the medical examiners. Okay. Um, and it was a really good interview. Like we had a good report. Um, I thought it went well. I was like super nervous, but it was fine. (laughs) Um, and then I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited. Uh, and then I emailed them. I was like, I really want this job. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then I think that there was some hang up because I was a new grad were you not also, you're the first genetic counselor to work exactly. in that position, right? Because one of my, I graduated from Sarah Lawrence in 2011, mm-hmm. and one of my classmates, Kayla York, wrote her thesis on a position for a genetic counselor at the chief medical examiner's office. But like I think you're, thank, the, you're the first like, one who like really actually her. made it happen, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm the first and only genetic counselor to work in a medical examiner's office. Uh-huh. And so I, I imagine that they want like would have wanted someone a little bit more experienced. Um, Although it's hard to find a genetic counselor with experience in and yeah. cardiovascular <laughs> genetics. If, no, you know, right. And postmortem. Who's, who's looking for a job? <laughs> right, exactly. So um, after a little while, um, I met, uh, they actually called me back in and I met with the chief 
And so uh, we got along really well. We had a, a really good back and forth. Um, we had similar like, missions and goals for the genetic counseling program for the medical examiner's office. So I think it just clicked from there. And that's then they offered me the job like on the spot. So what is your role actually like within the medical examiner's office and how do you work with patients or living people? Okay, so a young, seemingly healthy person passes away. Like that's not supposed to happen. What's going on here? Um, that's gonna be a medical examiner case. Um, so when a medical examiner has a case that kind of has an unclear cause of death um, or something that they might think is genetic, like there's a family history of something, um, then they have the opportunity to run a 95-gene panel um, that is run by the in-house molecular genetics laboratory, which is where I'm technically housed. Okay. And so the 95-genes is made up of uh, cardiomyopathies and channelopathies. Um, and so these are either structural issues with the heart or electrical issues with the heart. Okay. And so we run the testing. Um, it's uh, next-generation sequencing. Um, and if we find any variant, then we run the variant interpretation. Um, so my boss and I do the variant interpretation, and then we issue reports to the medical examiner. And if we have either a variant of uncertain significance, a likely pathogenic or a pathogenic variant, um, then we issue that report and the medical examiner has the opportunity to refer to me. And so if there's a VUS that's kind of fishy, like it's it's more suspicious and we think it might have something to do with the cause of death or there's likely pathogenic, pathogenic variant, uh -huh. um, then the medical examiner will kind of introduce me to the family and I'll have them come in for a genetic counseling session. Okay. Because what I want the family to understand is that, um, yes, we found this variant in your loved one. Um, this is what it meant for them. And then this is what it means for the family as a whole. So in meeting with these families, what is it like to have death be the starting point for your interaction with them? Yeah, I think it, it creates this immediate vulnerability that you might not have to deal with until further on in a session ordinarily. Um, it, further on in a genetic counseling session Exactly. Okay. It's kind of more upfront in that they're dealing with loss so viscerally um, and so immediately when I'm meeting them um, that it's important for me to make them feel as comfortable as possible and for me to be as open as possible. So I always start with condolences and just providing affirmations so that they know that it's a comfortable place, it's an open place, and I'm I'm thankful that they're here to talk to me so we can try and figure out a way to help the family. Uh-huh. And are you talking to them, do they come into your, like, an office area, or are you talking to them over the phone, or is it, like, a group of people, or how does that work when you're counseling kind of ideally a whole family? Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll call them to arrange a genetic counseling session. I prefer to meet in person, and we have a conference room that I, um, what is that word? Can reserve. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's a conference room that I can reserve, and I can make it, um, like I have water bottles, I have tissues, I have all of the amenities available for them there. Or if they don't want to come in or they can't come in for some reason, then we can organize a conference call. It's really whatever is best for the family at that 
moment. I want to meet them where they are. Uh-huh. Um, but I do find that most people want to come talk to me face to face. And so the conference room can fit up to 15 people. So if we have a large extended family, everybody can come in. Typically, it's between one to four people. Okay. So it's pretty manageable. So when you're first speaking with these families to arrange a time to meet, are you the one telling them for the first time that you have this genetic testing result that might be of some significance, or have they already gotten that information from the medical examiner? A medical examiner will typically let the family know that testing is being done. The amount of detail that they go into about what that test is and what that means uh, for the family. It depends on the medical examiner. Okay. Um, what's interesting about genetic testing from a medical examiner's office is that in order to determine cause of death, a medical examiner can order any test that they need, and that includes genetic testing, without consent. Okay. And so a medical examiner can order this testing at any point without letting anyone know, um, but they will typically tell the family that we're going to order this genetic testing. We want to try and figure out more to see if this condition is associated with the cause of death. We have a genetic counselor on staff that can talk to you more about what we find. Okay. So it's very brief. That sounds like ideal if they can kind of set the patient, the families up a little bit so that you're not cold calling them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I always want my medical examiner to sort of introduce me to the family like either over the phone or via email like this person is going to reach out to you don't be scared she comes in peace Uh, she just wants to help explain more about what these results mean yeah okay what are some so you've been at the medical examiner's office now for almost two years is that right yeah so what are some cases that have really stuck with you Yeah, so there are two cases that really come to mind for different reasons. So there's one case that really kind of showcases the importance of postmortem genetic testing. Okay. So it's an 18-year-old female who, she's a college student, she's home on spring break, um, and she had to get a physical for school. Mm -hmm. And so she was getting an EKG, and the physician said, you need to go to a cardiologist. Um, And so she went to a cardiologist, um, and they had her do some more testing, um, but in that period of time where they were doing an evaluation, she ended up passing away suddenly. Okay. So her family didn't know that any of this was going on. Um, They reported that she had no past medical history. And so when the medical examiner went through her medical records, they actually found that on her EKG, she had a prolonged QT Uh and she had a stress test where her uh, QT interval was like 600, which is very long. Okay. And what is is normal? So you have a risk of uh, an event if you're over, I think it's like 480 for a female. And so she's at 600, which is very, very long. And so you're at a high risk of having a cardiac event at that point. Okay. Um, And so for some reason, she didn't go to her follow-up, and she was never put on a beta blocker. 
And unfortunately, she passed away suddenly. And so we used that information to inform the test results. And we did actually find a pathogenic variant in a gene called KCNH2, which is associated with long QT. So it matches up with the phenotype that we were seeing. Um, And so we called in the family and they're understandably very anxious about the whole situation because they didn't know the seriousness of the condition that she was being worked up for. She was a completely healthy person. She had never had any kind of cardiac event before this. No one in their family had. Mm-hmm. Dad had like hypertension, but that was really the most of it. And she had two older siblings and three younger siblings. Okay. And so the parents were really concerned. Ab- about their other ab- children? Yeah, about about their children's risk of passing away suddenly. Um, and so we, had, we just had a really long counseling session to try to... Um, I mean, a part of my session is grief counseling. Um, and then we talk about how we want to use this information. We always say knowledge is power. And so now that we've found out the testing results, we can use this to screen family members. Okay. Um, And so if we find the same variant in her siblings, these conditions, they are deadly if you don't know you have them, but they're treatable. And so we can make sure that this kind of a thing never happens in the family again. Okay. And so we got them in to get family testing for the variant that we identified in the person who passed away. in both siblings and parents, and it turned out that no one shared the same variant. And so it was actually just a sporadic de novo change in this one girl. Um, And so everyone kind of breathed a collective sigh of relief. Um, And then also they were able to sort of get off the hook. They didn't have to go through follow-up after that point. like. Um, and then also a big thing is that if we didn't know the genetic testing results of the person who passed away, any genetic testing that her family would have had would have been uninformative because it would have just been a negative. And so but they still would have had this family history of a sibling and a daughter who passed away. So they would be followed indefinitely. Or they'd have testing done and a variant would be found. Right. (laughs) That didn't mean anything. (laughs) And they might be misinformed by the testing that was done because they didn't really start with the person who was the ideal candidate for testing. Exactly. Find a a VUS that kind of fits the picture uh, and then have an ICD placed or something crazy. Yeah. So the case of the 18-year-old girl, when you started telling that story, I thought you were going to explain how you identified family members who were at high risk and family members who were at low risk Mm -hmm. um, and were able to get proper management because of it. And I'm actually very surprised to hear that that was the outcome. So that's actually a very very strong argument for post-mortem genetic testing. Um, It's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, what I think of is always the at-risk family members, um, but I think it is important to note that without that person's genetic testing results, her family members couldn't be screened or treated appropriately. So it really does just show you how important t- post-mortem testing is at this point. Yeah. Um, but there are, of, of course, countless cases where the family is impacted. 
Um, and there's one case that really actually got me. Um, it was one of my earlier cases. I think it was probably, it was, I think it was like a year ago at this point. <laughs> it was like April of last year. So it's this, she's a 35 year old woman. Um, she develops uh, cardiomyopathy during pregnancy okay. um, and post-pregnancy, so like peripartum cardiomyopathy, which is a thing that happens to a good amount of women. So it's not that uncommon? No, but it it typically resolves itself. Okay. Um, so, but the medic, she ended up passing away two months after giving birth to her child. And so the medical examiner wanted to parse out whether this was actual peripartum cardiomyopathy or genetic cardiomyopathy. Okay. So they ordered the panel. And what we ended up finding was a pathogenic variant in KCNH2, which is the same gene that we were talking about in the last case. Okay. Um, that is associated, associated with long, Q- long QT. Exactly. Okay. So it's kind of this perfect storm in which the woman's peripartum cardiomyopathy existed to create this structural issue in the heart and her pre-existing um, arrhythmogenic variant in the KCNH2 kind of exacerbated that cardiomyopathy leading to a fatal arrhythmia okay um and so i brought in her husband for genetic counseling and he brought in his three-month-old beautiful baby girl um and and it was just a very challenging session this is going to be a very gendered comment but there's something about a grown man crying that really gets to me. Yeah. But, um, I mean, by the end of the session, he asked great questions. Um, and he it really showed kind of the resilience that people have because he was ready to take action at that point to do whatever he could to keep his baby girl safe. Um, and so we ended up sending them to a local cardiogenetics clinic to get screened for the variant that we found in um, the woman who passed away, um, get an EKG, get an echo just to get a baseline eval. And then we wanted to bring in... Um, and this is all even for the for the two-month-old baby yeah. that was already recommended for her? Yeah, we want to know if she um, inherited that um, KCNH2 variant because with these conditions, they're what we call autosomal dominant. And so there's a 50-50 chance that this woman had passed on this same variant to her child. Okay. And so with conditions like long QT, the channelopathies that um, have issues with the electrical impulse of the heart, those can present at any time. And so we want to know if she carried that same variant. Okay. And then at the time of her clinical evaluation, we also brought in all of this woman's first degree relative. So she had a brother and we brought in her parents. Um, and again, it just shows that these these conditions, they're, they're about families. That's what genetic conditions are. And so you really saw this family rally around this baby girl. Um, she was their main priority. Um, and it did actually turn out that she had inherited oh. the same variant. So it was really tough. It was, a, it was a hard session to go in there and say that, unfortunately, sh- she carries the same variant that her mom had. But she's not the same person. She has 
different genetics that interact with the variant. She has a different environment. And again, knowledge is power. We know that she has this variant. These conditions are treatable. And so now that we know, we can make sure that she doesn't suffer the same fate as her mom. So what do you recommend? Um, well, first, to back up, did so since you sent them to a local cardiogenetics clinic, mm-hmm. um, were they the ones who tested her and gave her the results, or were you still the one to give the results to the family? So for the medical examiner's office cannot test live people's samples. So we always refer out to cardiogenetics clinics. Okay. Um, we have multiple offerings within the city. Um, there is one that I have um, a relationship with where I go to the clinic. And so I'm there for their initial visit. I'm there for results. Oh, okay. And so I was able to be there for the initial visit, the eval, the test ordering, and the results disclosure. Okay. I like to create some kind of continuity, Con- continuity of care. Continuity of care, yeah. yeah. And I had developed a relationship with this family at that point, so I did really want to be there for those results, as heartbreaking as they were. Yeah. So for an infant like this, what's the advantage of knowing the diagnosis so early? I mean, they're not going to put an ICD in an infant, right? And our medication's really reasonable for her, so what is actually done differently for her in terms of management just based on knowing that diagnosis? You're right. Typically, we're not going to... Uh, put an ICD as step one, especially for someone so young. The conversation really centers around monitoring, so having regular EKGs um, and just merely avoiding substances that could trigger an arrhythmia. So depending on what type of long QT, they, they ha- there are different triggers. Um, long QT type two, they say there's a, you should avoid like loud auditory stimuli. Um, and so try and turn the ringers on your phone down. Um, and then there's also just certain medications and substances that you should avoid if you have long QT. And there's a website called Credible Meds that you can use as a reference. Um, if you're, say, a doctor prescribes you a medication, you just look it up on Credible Meds to see if you can actually take it. Um, and then with the baby, so it's really just about monitoring and avoiding at a young age. But arrhythmias can occur at any time. So um, after a period of monitoring, uh, then you start talking about thinking about going on a beta blocker. And again, down the road, that conversation of ICD, if you're having breakthrough events, does occur. So what does putting her on a beta blocker at some point, what what does that do? Like, how is that? What is a beta blocker? How does that help someone with lung QT syndrome? It mostly just slows the heart rate, um, keeps them on sort of an even keel through okay. their um, prolonged QT interval. Um, and beta blockers are prescribed for a multitude of things, from hypertension to the physical manifestation of anxiety to migraines. Like, they're used for so much. Most people don't realize that they're on a medication they're very there's like very minimal side effects okay so just because a listener happens to know someone on a beta blocker doesn't mean that person has long qt that is correct (laughs) that's a big one (laughs) you have to look at a ekg and see a very specific sign to have long qt uh do you have much contact with families after um you initially speak with them and go over any test results like ongoing? Do you have much contact with them? 
it depends on the family. So I always say this is the first time we're meeting. It doesn't have to be the last. I want to have an ongoing relationship with people that I uh, counsel. So it depends on if they're going to go to the cardiogenetics clinic to get follow-up testing and how long that takes, um, how many family members that they have that we need to test. If there's a super big extended family that we're doing familial testing for, I'll see them a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But if it's only a a few people here and there, then it's more of a restricted relationship. Um, But I do like to check in periodically just to see how they're doing, Mm -hmm. um, how the family is dealing with the loss, and if there's any further questions I can answer. Yeah. So, and how common are these conditions that cause sudden death? Like the cardiomyopathies that relate to the structure of the heart Mm -hmm. and the um, uh, inherited arrhythmias that relate to the electrical impulse of the heart. Like how common are they? So we're talking about rare disease. Okay. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, more on the high end with uh, one in 500, but long QT is rare with one in 2,500 being on the higher end of the spectrum. Okay. So it's not something where most families or, or individuals are going to have this, but since New York City is such a large city, mm-hmm. um, I imagine you end up seeing a lot of families anyway. So, I mean, I wouldn't say I see a lot of families. Um, it's probably like one a month. Oh, but you're okay. but you're right in saying that since New York is so big, um, that we're going to run into rare disease more often than other places. Right. Um, but again, you have to pass away for a very, very specific reason to come uh-huh. across my desk. Okay. And then also, um, we have to find a, a variant of that's suspicious. So if we find a variant that kind of doesn't fit the picture and probably has nothing to do with the cause of death a family's less likely to come in and talk to me because they just either there's other things going on in their life and this isn't really a priority um, or any other reason. Or they understand that it just it might not have anything to do with it. Right. They've been told that this is a variant of uncertain significance and probably not medically significant. So they're like, why would I go for follow up in that case? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I know that in the United States, in some areas of the country, there's a coroner system. Coroners are usually elected, usually not physicians, maybe consult with physicians when needed. Um, In other areas, like in New York City, there's a medical examiner system, and medical examiners are physicians, pathologists specifically. Uh, So in other areas of the country where they have the medical examiner system, is this... um, a resource is it is it possible to uh, do genetic testing to rule out certain um, cardiogenetic causes of death? Or my impression is that this is only really available in New York City. Is that is that right? New York City is the only place where you can get this kind where a so medical examiner can testing. order this. Yes, yeah. testing. Other medical examiners' office have have to uh, send out for testing. So like any physician you can order clinical testing. Mm-hmm. And if you're a medical examiner, you're a physician. So they can order through any commercial laboratory. Mm-hmm. So that's how they get testing. But they have to prioritize that because that's not cheap at all for institutional billing. Right. It can be thousands of dollars. Right. So at the where you are, because there's an in-house laboratory, they don't have to consider the cost. It's just a resource that's available to them. Exactly. If they want it. So like a lot of what we're doing or what I do with other medical examiners um, I'm working on um, 
like recommendations for testing for sudden death in childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have to kind of build this genetic testing algorithm that also keeps in mind the fact that a lot of coroner's offices or other medical examiner's office might might not even have like a freezer or a purple top tube that Mm. they can use to take a sample. Okay. So it's really, I mean, it's interesting to try and develop testing strategies for people that have so few resources. Yeah. So you've been working at the medical examiner's office for almost two years now. What do you wish that genetic counselors, doctors, just non-medical individuals knew about post-mortem genetic testing? I mean, the case examples really show the importance of post-mortem genetic testing, but there are still so many barriers to getting this type of testing. And what I really want everyone to know is that even though there are barriers, you're not alone. There are resources available to help you uh, pursue genetic testing if that's something that you're interested in from a family perspective, as a medical examiner, as as an EP with a patient who has a family history of sudden death. There are resources available to you to try and get a postmortem sample and get that sample tested. The postmortem working group from NSGC has an on-call email address. It is <laughs> postmortem at nsgc.org. That's relatively memorable. Yes. And we'll include all of this in the show notes. Exactly. Think. And they'll they'll get back to you within 48 hours. Um, they'll answer any questions you have. Um, and so while this can be a super isolating experience, I think it's really important to know that you're not alone. Yeah, interesting. I'm surprised to hear that there's just an email where you could reach out to someone and get in, get a response yeah. within 48 hours. So your job sounds emotionally difficult in some ways, and I'm guessing that you meet people who say that your job sounds really depressing. What do, what do you say to that? Like, how do you see, how do you feel about your job and the work that you do? I hear, wow, that's really morbid all the time. <laughs> okay. And it's, I have to agree with them in some sense like sure I work in a field where I'm um, dealing with post-mortem samples so a person has passed away and their family's grieving and so in a sense that is totally morbid but I really feel that my work is impactful um, in a way that a lot of other people don't get to experience again it goes back to that immediate sense of vulnerability that I think creates a deeper um, relationship with someone because you Mm -hmm. are you do have your mask off at that point you are more genuinely yourself when you're more vulnerable and so I think that's a a really good aspect of my job yeah I guess I mean and death and crises kind of bring people together sometimes not always and kind of make people focus on what's what's important to them when I think that the people who come into my office it's kind of self-selecting to be more of that type of person that you right. just described right if it if it didn't bring people together you never meet them right exactly <laughs> if it did bring them together you're there in your i'm here room. for them yeah. yeah okay well thank you very much for coming on the podcast um it's been an absolute pleasure i'm so obsessed with podcasts this is such a big deal for me <laughs> i appreciate you inviting me to be on today great and uh this should be released um during uh the heart rhythm society conference oh, in great. just a couple of weeks so we can look forward to like pushing the other genetic counselors there to listen to it sounds good see you then okay bye nori if you'd like to share your story send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com
The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.